Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. Today, we meet Danny Goldberg. Now, that name may ring a bell for regular listeners of this show who would remember my interview with him from a year or two back when we talked about his rock and roll life as the manager of Nirvana, the publicist for Led Zeppelin, and the record company executive who released Stevie Nicks' solo records, Warren Zevon's Grammy winner, The Wind, Steve Earle's Grammy winning The Revolution Starts Now, and even the Baja men's single, Who Let the Dogs Out? What you may not know is that he's also an activist, sitting on the board of the ACLU Foundation of Southern California and the National Institute and Americans for Peace Now and many, many others. His new book is called Bloody Crossroads 2020, Art, Entertainment, and Resistance to Trump. It's available wherever you buy fine books and takes a look at a number of things, including how singer Taylor Swift became an unwitting idol for the neo-Nazi movement. It explores the impact of entertainment uh, celebrities in communications, fundraising, and campaigning to support the election of Joe Biden and much, much more. Let's get to know Danny Goldberg. You were at Woodstock. You managed Nirvana. You were Led Zeppelin's publicist, all that stuff. Tell me a little bit about how uh, politics intersects with all of that stuff. I graduated from high school in 1967 at the height of the Vietnam War uh, and and was very, as a kid, uh, um, emotionally inspired by the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and and so forth. Uh, Then when I got into the music business, for the first many years, that was sort of just in the back of my mind as a private thing. But in 1979, I had a PR company and one of my clients was John Hall, who was the guitar player of the band Orleans. And he became um, involved with the movement to stop the proliferation of nuclear power plants. He had been a physics major in college. He was convinced they caused environmental damage. Uh, he put together a committee of artists. And then after the um, there was an accident in Pennsylvania at a nuclear power plant in a town called Three Mile Island, and um, it became front page news. And in the wake of that, at the end of 79, um, John uh, reached out to Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, uh, uh, Graham Nash uh, to put together uh, a series of concerts at Madison Square Garden to raise money for grassroots groups that were trying to stop nuclear power. And um, uh, somehow I talked uh, Jackson and the others into the idea that that there should be a movie made of this and that I should be involved in making the movie, even though I didn't have that much of a background for that. So myself and a guy I met then, who's still a very close friend of mine named Julian Schlossberg, ended up producing and directing a movie called No Nukes. In Madison Square Garden and Battery Park on September 19th through 23rd, 1979, a phenomenal one-time gathering of rock superstars united in a musical show against nuclear power. No nukes! No nukes! No nuke. Go! experience the movie and the star of it was bruce springsteen who jackson recruited and who headlined the last two nights and some footage from the no nukes performances of springsteen i think is just being released now yep. uh uh you know uh, in our feature film we had uh, three songs we had the river um thunder road 
And then we had him doing uh, a quarter to three, the Gary Bonds hit, and he as a duet did a duet with Jackson of the old oldies stay. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, uh, he did a longer show, obviously. So so just recently, Bruce, uh, you know, and his folks have uh, have released some footage from those uh, nineteen seventy nine shows. Anyway, after that movie came out, uh, the whole experience of doing it, I realized that the world where I was making my living, the the music business, the rock and roll world could impact um, the political conversation on certain issues and in certain situations. And um, and and I uh, was also uh, became known as somebody in the business that sort of had some progressive political views and started getting calls from different organizations and committees. And, you know, so starting in the 80s, I was frequently considered a so-called uh, activist uh, as, a, as an avocation. My main role being, you know, managing artists and then later running record companies. So um, so that's been many, many decades. And I was, uh, you know, on the board of the American Civil Liberties Union. And I'm today still on the board of uh, the group Public Citizen, which is a consumer watchdog group that's very engaged in trying to influence uh, the Congress and so forth. And um you know, periodically, I, I wrote about uh, issues from the through the prism of um, uh, artists, uh, through the prism sometimes of free speech on the arts, going back several decades and on certain issues. And, um, you know, after my last book uh, was published a couple of years ago, which was a memoir about working with Kurt Cobain, I was just trying to think of what was there another book inside me, because I really been grateful to be able to write a few books and I liked doing that as part of the mix of how I spend my time at this point in my life and I was really taken with the phenomenon of the breadth and intensity of the uh, opposition to Donald Trump amidst the uh, creative community not just musicians but actors and directors writers comedians as well as singers and songwriters you're listening to my interview with Danny Goldberg author of Bloody Crossroads 2020 Art, Entertainment, and Resistance to Trump, available now wherever fine books are sold. I'm always a little bit amazed when I hear, and I do hear this a lot from people, oh, it's just an actor, it's just a musician, why can't they just play the song, uh, play the part in the movie that I want to see, and don't inflict your politics on me? How do you respond to that? Well, um, the American system, a lot of people have disproportionately loud microphones, particularly people with a lot of money. So it's not like we have a pure democracy. We, we, we have a, a so-called republic with some democratic elements and many anti-democratic elements in them. And um, so people who have any kind of power uh, usually try to influence uh, politics one way or another, whether it's corporations, labor unions, uh, you know, journalists. Uh, so, so artists are sort of on that list of people who have the ability to reach, uh, yeah, religious leaders also very frequently get involved with political issues, not all of them, but many of them. So artists are on that list of people with access to an audience. And so some, uh, now, whether is it, is it, um, can it be done in a way that's annoying uh, or preachy or lame? Of course, that's the case with people in all those other categories too and uh, are sometimes people motivated by ego. Yes, that's the case with all those other categories too. Uh, but, but I think that in America, uh, you know, we, in 2016, um, our system produced a, a president that had been the host of a reality TV show for 14 years. And as 
I'm sure you know, reality TV shows have little to do with reality. <laughs> they're scripted, they're edited, they're, 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 they're um, you know, a, a false view of the world for the purpose of entertainment. And they created the perception that this guy was an appropriate uh, leader with enough people in our weird system that even though he got fewer votes than his opponent, he was uh, deemed president by this thing we have called the Electoral College, which mm -hmm. was created in the 18th century for, you know, and I wish we could get rid of it, but it's not so easy to change our constitution. So, um, you know, I just felt that the, um, that, that, that there had long been a tradition of artists weighing in on certain political issues. Uh, Charlie Chaplin made the great dictator uh, before the beginning of, before the U.S. got into World War II. Uh, and, uh, in, 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 you know, in, in the decades since the, this phenomenon of so-called liberal Hollywood or activist artists, uh, you know, was, was, uh, was part of the scenery of the American political conversation. But there was a huge increase in intensity after Trump, both because he came out of Hollywood, you know, through that TV show, and because he was elected uh, by pandering to uh, racists, and he was kind of uh, known to be a misogynist uh, from the videotape, uh, even of him talking about, uh, you know, grabbing women. And, um, and, and the creative community, uh, without really organizing itself, just almost spontaneously, you had people from Taylor Swift and Cardi B to uh, uh, who were new in some to this mm -hmm. conversation, relatively new at least, uh, over the last few years to older older actors like Robert De Niro and Bette Midler, who previously had not been particularly outspoken. Uh, you had uh, every late night comedian, you know, on their show at night uh, was suddenly talking about uh, Trump. Uh, that was uh, that was new. When Jon Stewart uh, started hosting The Daily Show in 1999, he was the only one doing that. During the Trump era, it was every show, every night. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that in a world where the old school media has become fragmented, there's podcasts, there's uh, there's blogs, there's uh, Twitter that that, uh, that that this kind of a populist uh, non non-traditional communication was affecting more and more people when it came to political views and elections. Uh, the right wing in our country has uh, the right wing talk radio. They have a tremendous amount of money is going into these right wing blogs and Internet campaigns and social media campaigns. And the countervailing force that can reach that part of the public that doesn't like, you know, traditional political media, that's brain is not attuned to an op-ed or public radio, uh, you know, the so-called Hollywood, the community of artists uh, does have access to tens of millions of people that the political media doesn't always reach and that political advertising doesn't always reach. So I don't think that uh, this was the most important thing in the coalition that defeated Trump, but it was a part of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's part of the mix. It's part of the mix of how large swaths of the American public are getting thoughts and information. And, uh, you know, as someone who is uh, on the left, uh, I, I, I appreciate those efforts of disparate artists, even though sometimes they don't always have their facts. Sometimes they say things that are intemperate or off what the talking points are that the political campaign advisors would like, but they have a uh, talent by definition to reach people's hearts in a way that the conventional politicians often can. Let's talk about Taylor Swift, who was apolitical up until 2020 or ish around there, and then uh, somehow was embraced by the neo-Nazi movement. You talk about this in the, in the book. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so how does this happen? And then what role do you think uh, that she played in all of this 
yeah. afterwards in defeating Trump? Well, um, she actually, um, she had earlier in her career, in her early 20s, she became a star at a very young age. And part of the group of ways that she connected with the public was through a country radio. She had country hits as well as pop hits. And she was brought up as an entertainer in, a, in an idea of don't offend anybody. And she sort of talks about this a lot in a documentary that she released uh, a couple of years ago called uh, Miss Americana. And um, in tooth and, and because uh, and, and she she several times was publicly asked about political issues and said, I don't talk about politics. I don't want to offend people. That's not my role and so on. And somehow or other, um, because she was blonde and had a country music following and was not uh, automatically jumping into the conversation on the left the way a lot of artists do, there was a, a, a white supremacist groups and some Aryan blog uh, decided she was their, um, theirs and, and praised her as an Aryan goddess and all this sort of a thing. And obviously she was, um, uh, she, when she got wind of it, uh, she became appalled by this. Uh, she had a few more years of success by now, by 2018, she's 27, 26, 27, 28. And she uh, weighed in on the election for the United States Senate in, uh, in, um, in her home state of Tennessee. And, uh, and, and, and that, was, uh, that was when she suddenly could have sort of came out as a you know, liberal, as a Democrat. Taylor Swift is known for belting out ballads of heartbreak and girl power anthems. But this morning, she's using her voice in a whole new way. Writing on an Instagram post overnight, in the past, I've been reluctant to publicly voice my political opinions, but due to several events in my life and in the world the past two years, I feel very differently about that now. And, uh, you know, in one day, um, she put some um, information on her website, and uh, in one day, uh, 65,000 people vote, uh, registered to vote as a result of her urging them to do so. Now, the candidate she supported, uh, Phil Bresden, lost that race for senator in Tennessee. The Republican held on to the seat, but ever after that experience, she was all in on expressing her political views and her uh, opposition to Trump, her concerns about racism, uh, about feminism, and um, and became um, this uh, newly minted uh, political uh, activist. So by the time 2020 came around, she had uh, she had planted her 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 feet in that camp. Uh, she had uh, over 80 million Twitter followers, more than Trump had, and uh, she was one of the voices that I think uh, let uh, people know um, that, in her view, it was important to participate. I don't think artists and entertainers can change the mind of somebody about whether or not they're a Republican or a Democrat, whether or not they like Donald Trump or dislike him. But there's a whole group of Americans that are unsure about whether or not it's worth it to vote. Mm -hmm. And then there are another group that are unsure about whether it's worth it to vote for one of the two parties. Like in 2016, so-called third parties got 5.7% um, of the vote. And that was why Hillary Clinton lost. The previous time it was 1.7%, but because of this feeling of, oh, they both suck, the negativity about Hillary Clinton, the, the, the campaigns people did, some believe funded and inspired by the Russians, but whether it was or wasn't, um, moved 4% more voters away from the Democrats. 
And that certainly was way, way, way more than the margin of victory that Trump had that uh, gave him the Electoral College victory. You know, we, I assume your listeners know how our ridiculous system works, <laughs> the so-called Electoral College. You're listening to my interview with Danny Goldberg, author of Bloody Crossroads 2020, Art, Entertainment, and Resistance to Trump, available now wherever fine books are sold. I think in terms of getting uh, reluctant voters to show up and vote, uh, it's 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 a big deal. And more and more in America, there's this feeling that uh, people are pretty set in their views and it's hard to get people to change their minds. And so the campaigns, instead of becoming about persuasion, are becoming more and more about turnout, about activating the people that would agree with you, especially those people that only agree with you a little bit and are not sure it's worth it to vote and 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 are what they call low information voters that don't read all the articles about it and those are the people where i think the creative community has the most impact because they they are reaching these same people through other ways and uh, you know they can create they can affect the atmosphere the notion of what's cool the notion of what's important uh and uh i think when you have a, a closely divided electorate um you know, uh, every percentage point matters. And I think in terms of the broad coalition that did defeat Trump in in 2020, that the creative community was definitely part of it. You know, it's uh, again, I don't want to overstate it, but it's important not to understate it because the old ways of campaigning, just relying on 30 second television spots and opinion pieces in the newspapers and campaign rallies uh, is insufficient to beat a right wing that has these um, echo chamber of right wing talk radio, right wing blogs, dominating Facebook. Um, uh, and uh, you have to have a populist countervailing energy. So I think it's more important politically today than it was 10 or 20 years ago in America. Uh, and I'm also kind of fascinated by it because I think it's another set of voices trying to define what public morality is. Mm. And people would say, well, how can you talk about morality? You have people in Hollywood and they have seven <laughs> wives and yeah. scandals and they have big houses and private jets. And yeah, that, that's true of all rich people. But I think that morality, uh, you know, who should define morality? Uh, religious groups? Yes. But a lot of religious leaders have their own uh, personal problems. We've seen scandal after scandal and we have a large sum portion of the country that doesn't affiliate with a religion. You've got uh, academics, but a lot of people uh, tune out academia at an early time in their life. You've got the political journalism, but they only reach, you know, maybe a quarter of the country. Most of the country are not political junkies like me. They don't watch all these things. And I think artists are part of framing values. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And I think a lot of artists see themselves that way. Uh, uh, Judd Apatow, who's one of the most... Um, successful comedy uh, producers of films and directors and writers over the last 20 years gave an interview on MSNBC uh, last year where he said that, that he hopes that people who see his work see that part of what he's trying to say is don't be an asshole. I like to put nice messages out there. You know, I want to be proud of what I'm saying. I want to think that there's some morals behind the work. I want it to be good hearted. And I think if I just show the human struggle and show someone get even a click better or learn one tiny thing, it's useful for people to see a story like that. He and a lot of others extrapolate that, that society as a whole should not behave like a And when you've got the health yeah, pandemics, you've got racism, you've got poverty, wealth disparity, climate change, uh, you know, it's a time when many of us are hoping that 
even though we have different religious values and mores and cultural interests, that there's got to be a way of people working together to serve to, to, to solve common problems. And there's a countervailing philosophy that says the hell with everybody else. I just care about me and my tribe. And, uh, you know, uh, I prefer the communal attitude rather than the, the hell with everybody else attitude. Uh, and I think most artists do too. Not all, there's some right-wing artists, but the vast majority of creative people, both now and in the past, seem to veer to the left. When do you think that it became so polarized and why? Why you know, now when I look at politics, I see uh, like sports. I think of sports. I think if you root for the Toronto Maple Leafs, you will never root for the Montreal Canadiens and vice yeah. versa. Yeah, yeah. There, there is no, there is and, no and great. Which, which, which one do you prefer? Well, I live in Toronto, so I'm going to, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but I'll, I'll tell you, there's no gray area in between. There's no nuance left. Yeah, yeah. And why and when do you think that happened? Is it because it's just easier to lean heavily into one thing or another because you can quite easily fit into an echo chamber on social media or uh, whatever media you consume. What happened? Well, there's no question that social media somehow changed the character of the society, not just in America, but all over the world. And that it gave a megaphone to uh, sometimes extreme voices and creates an incentive for tribalism based on the way these uh, social media sites work. But the underlying conflicts are not new. We had a civil war in the United States in the 19th century, uh, you know, 150 years ago uh, or so. And um, a lot of that was about race. And a lot of the conflicts today in America are about race. Um, we, we, we've, you know, Barry, uh, there's always been, um, you know, there was 40% of the country that was against Franklin Roosevelt, my parents' favorite president. There was 40% of the country that was for Barry Goldwater, considered the most radical, uh, Republican up until that time. So the only difference has been sort of in that 20% in the middle has sort of shrunk to 5% in the middle or three, you know, that's been the big change. But the, the this philosophical debates about selfishness versus community, about inclusiveness versus just your own group, about, um, uh, you know, free speech or free religious beliefs, about, uh, about uh, taxation, should the rich pay more, uh, these kind of things, should there be a minimum wage? And if so, how high should it be? Those arguments are not new. Those arguments have always been there. And there's always been intense, um, my goodness, growing up in the Vietnam period, I mean, there was intense polarization in the United States. I mean, you had uh, uh, people beating up uh, peace marchers. You had the uh, people blowing up buildings. Uh, you had race riots in the 60s that were far worse than anything we saw in recent years. Uh, my, uh, you know, uh, in, the, in the 50s, before that, there was the McCarthy period in America where, where hundreds and hundreds of people were fired because they were accused of being communists just because they, you know, may have been part of some liberal organization that had nothing to do with communism. Um, and, uh, you know, in World War I, you had, uh, you had the Alien and Sedition Acts, you had people deported from America or jailed because they were against World War I. So, these tensions have been under the surface for the whole life of the country, but the social media era has, has sort of put it front and center with a greater intensity. Uh, Trump certainly fueled those fires. I think the, uh, we used to have a thing in the United States up until the late eighties called the fairness doctrine, where broadcasters, uh, if they had a political point of view, they had to have a, um, 
response to it, an equal time provision it was called, and that uh, that the, this incentivized um, a lot of um, ideologues from getting airtime. And then under the Reagan administration, and to me, Reagan is very much the forerunner of Trump in terms of the kind of coalition he put together. He's a better politician than Trump. He was much more popular than Trump ever was, but a lot of the same policies and a lot of the same uh, uh, playing with race to get to get them done kind of a thing. So in the end of the 80s, uh, under Reagan, that the so-called fairness doctrine was ended. And the very next year, uh, Rush Limbaugh started broadcasting in America. I am Rush Limbaugh, America's real anchorman. We make the complex understandable. And we do it in a way that makes you love your country, not hate it. I have a question for the Democrats. When are you people going to get tired of losing? And he, of course, became the preeminent voice of the right wing up until his death a year or two ago and really created the psychological climate for Fox News and for a lot of the right wing things. So so that era, you could say, started in the late 80s. You're listening to my interview with Danny Goldberg, author of Bloody Crossroads 2020, Art, Entertainment and Resistance to Trump, available now wherever fine books are sold. And then you've got, uh, you know, the social media era that, that creates a whole new set of tools for extremists, uh, but the underlying moral and f- philosophical arguments and the sense of tribalism, my goodness, you know, again, civil war, you know, you, were you wearing blue or were you wearing gray? You know, that was a, hundreds of thousands of Americans killed each other in the, in, in the civil war when we had a population that's like 20% of what we have now or a third of what we have now. So these are age old conversations played out in in the new technological uh, age. And in this new age, I think artists play a bigger role than they did in the past. They always played some kind of a role. I mean, in our, the, the struggle to end slavery in America was tremendously helped by a novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, that galvanized the white support for abolition in the, uh, in the uh, mid 19th century. But um, this era, has created a playing field where the creative community uh, is more important politically than they were in the past. We can talk about television shows like Will and Grace, like Ellen, like Modern Family that helped place LGBTQ plus issues uh, in the mainstream uh, and in a way that television hadn't really done before, or certainly I would say had never done before, uh, and it enhanced public acceptance of gay marriage. Oh, it's huge. Uh, uh, and and, and the, the gay rights movement had a whole division and an organization that's just focused on Hollywood, on scripts, and and uh, and on giving awards. Uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm blocking out the name of the organization that did it, but it'll come to me. Very, very important. I think that um, during the Trump era, a, a thing happened where, um, you know, we we don't have the same kind of health care that you have in Canada. I wish we did. We, we have this uh, among uh, uh, developed countries. We have the worst health care s- system. But uh, under President Obama tried to address that. And he um, he he got through this bill, the Affordable Care Act that people refer to as Obamacare which at least uh, expanded the number of people who could get health insurance and in particularly banned insurance companies. It prevented insurance companies from rejecting people with so-called pre-existing conditions. Huge deal, big deal to me. Both of my children have what would be called pre-existing conditions. 
um, and and to millions and millions and millions of people. So uh, the Republicans were obsessed with we got to repeal, repeal, repeal Obamacare and demonized Obamacare. Over the years, it became somewhat more popular in America. Trump gets in; he's promised to repeal it. And um, uh, Jimmy Kimmel, um, who hosted late night show um, on uh, ABC, uh, one of the three late night shows with big audiences, uh, had a son born with a heart condition, uh, had to have surgery right after his birth, uh, and he. Uh, he talked emotionally during the time that the Republicans were trying to repeal it about how um, his son had a pre-existing condition. And if people like him had kids like that and they didn't have a lot of money, their kids would die. And he made this impassioned appeal to maintain the um, prohibition on insurance company, uh, keeping people with pre-existing conditions out. We were brought up to believe that we live in the greatest country in the world, but in, until what, a few years ago, millions and millions of us had no access to health insurance at all. You know, before 2014, if you were born with congenital heart disease, like my son was, there was a good chance you'd never be able to get health insurance because you had a pre-existing condition. You were born with a pre-existing condition. If your parents didn't have medical insurance, you might not live long enough to even get denied because of a pre-existing condition. If your baby is going to die, and it doesn't have to, it, it shouldn't matter how much money you make. I think that's something that, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or something else, we all agree on that, right? I mean, we do. And uh, he changed the public opinion polls on the issue. Uh, many political journalists, uh, the New York Times, NPR, people that had nothing to do with show business said that he had become the most trusted voice on it. Trump's attempt to repeal it was defeated by one vote in the Senate. And um, uh, Kimmel was widely given credit as one of the most effective voices because he could speak in an emotional language that didn't sound like a politician. What is the role of the arts in influencing the way we think? Here's Danny Goldberg. More often, the role of art is to just sort of change the atmosphere to, 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 to bring issues to the fore that might be ignored by the political media, uh, to, to try to have an alternative definition of morality, like I said, or what's cool, what's worth doing. But, but I think that um, uh, during the Trump era, uh, um, comedy was particularly important. I would say more so, honestly, than music. My, I, I work in music. I don't work in comedy. But... People used to say that, uh, you know, music was the soundtrack of the 60s. And I really feel comedy was the soundtrack of the Trump years because you had, uh, it seemed like every comedy special, Wanda Sykes or George Lopez or um, Amy Schumer, you know, you couldn't do a comedy special for the first few years of Trump without having 10 minutes about Trump. And it was, it was just redefining for that audience. No, this is what we believe. This guy being the president. It's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. It's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. I think eventually everything's gonna be okay, but I have no idea what's gonna happen next. And neither do any of you, and neither do your parents, because there's a horse loose in the hospital. It's never happened before. No one knows what the horse is gonna do next, least of all the horse. He's never been in a hospital before. He's as confused as you are. And uh, similarly, the late night show is five nights a week. The New York Times used to used to have uh, uh, every uh, week or two a summary of of the of the uh, jokes 
that comedians late night were making at the expense usually of, of the Republicans. Jay Leno points out that comedy on the very boring late night shows is totally one-sided. It's tough when there's only one topic at Fox and Friends. Okay, let, 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 me, let me stop right there. The comedy I do is not one-sided. I can make fun of the president from every <laughs> angle. And so I think during the Trump period that I write about, I think comedy was particularly important. You know, then you had directors like uh, Steven Spielberg uh, deciding to make the movie um, uh, The Post um, about, um, about a previous uh, Republican administration's attempt to uh, block um, the release of the so-called Pentagon Papers. Mm-hmm. And he said in interviews that he specifically decided to do it in response to Trump's demonization of the uh, mainstream media as the so-called enemy of the people. You're listening to my interview with Danny Goldberg, author of Bloody Crossroads 2020, Art, Entertainment, and Resistance to Trump, available now wherever you buy fine books. Uh, David Simon, who produced the miniseries The Wire, one of my favorites, um, told me that um, he decided to make a miniseries based on Philip Roth's novel, The Plot Against America, because Trump won. He had passed on it before, but then he saw the parallels between the novel, which imagines a fascist victory over Roosevelt in 1940, uh, and the parallels between that uh, imagined history and the real-life history of, of, of the Trump years. There's a lot of hate out there, and he knows how to tap into it. We have to get out. They've closed the borders. My country. Not anymore. It is the America Firsters. It's their country. So there were people, uh, not just musicians, although of course musicians were very vocal also. I also think of the movie Spotlight, which came out. There was yes. a number of films that came out and television shows that came out that were very pro-journalist. And I saw that and recognized it at the time as an answer to fake news, to the answer to Trump in, in pointing out individual uh, journalists in his in his uh, briefings at the White House and at his rallies and mocking them and getting the audiences to... Oh, oh no question about it. Them. You know, and of course, enemy of the people was a phrase that was lifted from uh, fascists of previous eras. Uh, literally, the Nazis used it, Stalin used it to describe the media, to describe anyone who criticized them, because autocrats don't feel anyone should criticize them. And... Um, there was a Broadway show um, that was a spinoff of the movie Network. That I saw won it, yeah. a lot of awards. And when uh, when um, Brian Cranston, who was the star of it, won the Tony Award, which is the equivalent of the Oscars for Broadway, he he specifically said, "I'm sick of hearing about the press being the enemy of the people. I think it represents the people." Blah blah blah. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of. Um, uh, identification, you're right, that uh, that artists have long had with the romantic idea of the press, movies mm. like All the President's Men, like The Front Page, and like you said, like Spotlight. Uh, so that was certainly uh, one of the strands. There was a lot to deal with, you know, uh, but that was one of the things for sure. Okay, final question here, and it's a big one. 
is there a way to reverse the damage that has been done in the last five or six years in terms of uh, the polarization in terms of uh, the the uh, downgrading of the press as a trusted source. Uh, is there a way to to turn back that tide or is it too late? Well, I think, you know, it's obviously a cosmic question about humanity in general, not just about the demonization of the press. And certainly applies to something like climate change is, is the real biggest question about is it too late? Uh, about the racial polarization and other things. And I think uh, I'm an optimist. Uh, I always try, I've seen a lot of positive changes in my lifetime, as well as negative changes. You look at the uh, uh, race relations are still very troubled in this country, but they're a lot better than they were when I was a teenager. Uh, same with the opportunities for women, for the gay community and, consciousness about the environment. So I just think it's one day at a time. I think it's a, it's a, important not to become uh, impatient and expect everything to be fixed overnight. I mean, these conversations about human morality have been going on, not for decades, but for millennia. You go back to the conversations in the Bible, the ancient Greece, you know, it was a lot of the same underlying issues for humanity. And I think that, uh, you know, it's just one day at a time trying to be a good person, trying to uh, use whatever little or big influence you've got and uh, hope that uh, the same way I can say things are better overall in many respects than they were 50 years ago. And hopefully long after I'm off the planet in this form anyway, uh, people will look back and say, gee, it's a lot better now than it was in 2021. But the idea that it's going to be solved overnight, uh, given the history of tribal conflicts in the world, not just in this country, is not rational. You have to, you have to have a mature attitude about you do what you can every day, and better to save one life than not. And you know uh, that's that's uh, it, it, it's a marathon, you know, not not a sprint. To cook up another old cliche. <laughs> well, Danny, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you again. Oh, so nice of you to talk to me. God bless. He's a fascinating guy. Danny Goldberg. The book is Bloody Crossroads 2020. You can find it wherever you buy fine books. A big thanks to Danny. But of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay healthy. Stay happy. Stay safe. Stay weird. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah.